Thank you so much. It's good to see you here today. I'd like to echo the words of the prayer and those of Rebecca. We are so grateful for those that enable us to put on this class. There are a lot of um, hands behind the scenes that make possible what we do here in the stake and are so grateful for all of them from the people that set up the tech, the people that do the website and the podcast, the people in the nursery, the beautiful music, um, the men who help out watching the cars, the women who set up the chapel. There are so many people that contribute and us as teachers are just such a small part and so appreciative to those who enable this, this class to take place. Um, it, as mentioned, this is our last class of the year. We're, we're just about done, um, at least as far as the Doctrine and Covenants go. And um, I wanted to start, make sure everything's set up here. Um, I wanted to start before we launch into our lesson, our last lesson, and the topic we have assigned for today. I wanted to pause and have you take a look at where we have been, where we have have traveled this semester as we have studied the Doctrine and Covenants and the Restoration of the Gospel of Jesus Christ together. I'm on the board. Right now you should be seeing a list. Make sure. Oh, wait, I can do even better. Um, you should be seeing a list of all of the different classes that we held, starting with A Marvelous Work and a Wonder that Cynthia Haller taught um, about the apostasy that set up the need for the restoration that we discussed this year. The first vision, Rosemary, talking about the nine accounts of the first vision and the, and the miracle that that was. And then going on through the rest of the list, coming forth of the Book of Mormon, the, the translation process that we talked about, that Joseph with his seer stone, with the Urim and Thummim, and all of the rest, and on and on. Will you just take a look at that list for a minute and just kind of think about, travel back a little bit to the semester that you've had, and I want you to think about two questions. One, what have I learned? And two, how am I different because of what I have learned? Take just a minute. That was inspiration coming down. Will you take now just 30 seconds and turn to a neighbor near you, and will you please share with them the answer to one of those questions? Either what have you learned, or what have you changed because of what you have learned this semester? All right, switch if you haven't. Awesome, thank you. I hope, sisters, that this has been worthwhile, valuable, holy time to you. I hope it has been that not so much because of what I or Rosemary or Cynthia have brought to the table, but rather because it has also meant a dedication to studying the Word of God and a desire to learn more and an invitation through that study and that desire to have the Holy Ghost teach you and to bring you greater, to a greater level of conversion. As I was thinking about my hopes, and um, whatever other plans um, and experiences that you may have, I had a couple. Uh, I had some hopes um, that, we, that we as teachers would hope that you had had this semester. I hope that you have come to have a greater appreciation and love for the Prophet Joseph Smith and his wife, Emma. What a beautiful lesson that Sister Haller taught to us on Emma Smith and then a few weeks later on Joseph. I hope you have come to understand them better, both their frailty, frailties and their humanity, 
as well as the divinity of the work in which they were engaged and the wholeheartedness with which they approached it. I hope that you have come to a better understanding of the restoration, this line upon line event, or process rather, that took place beginning in the early 1800s. I hope you were able to see that it wasn't a church that plopped down out of heaven in perfect form with everything understood, but rather, as we have learned time and time again throughout this semester, that you saw that prophets are taught the way we are taught, line upon line, that they walk step by step in faith, and that the restoration really unfolded bit by bit and line upon line and, and understanding upon understanding, that it didn't come down in perfect form, that it was in some cases trial and error or the best attempt to apply a revelation, just as you and I do in our lives. I hope you have come to love the players in that great drama and the doctrines that were restored. We have a list of the, some of them here. Eternal marriage, the endowment, the articles of faith, becoming like God, the redemption of the dead, the three degrees of glory, the law of consecration, the idea of agency, the idea of revelation, the restoration of the priesthood, organization of the church, all these pieces that built one upon the other to bring the church that we know today, to make it what it is, and the huge, tremendous sacrifices, speaking of Missouri persecution and Liberty Jail, for example, that were made by the people that brought it to pass so that you and I could have it today. I hope you've come to a greater understanding understanding and love of that restoration in addition to a greater understanding and love of the Doctrine and Covenants as a book of scripture, an additional witness of Christ and particularly of Christ's kingdom in our day. I hope that that's, that understanding has created in you a greater resolve to hold up that kingdom, to consecrate to that kingdom, to be better witnesses of Christ and of his restored gospel. I hope for all of the mothers and the grandmothers, that it, you have had questions answered or have learned things that will enable you to teach your children powerfully about the doctrines of the restored gospel, to answer questions that may come up through friends or other means, and that you may be able to bear witness of the, the, even the tricky aspects of, the, of church history and of the restoration of the gospel. And finally, um, President Bowie shared this scripture with us as teachers when we were setting out on this semester before we even started. It comes from Doctrine and Covenants 1, verse 21, the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants written by God himself or re revealed by him. And it gives many reasons for the Doctrine and Covenants, but the one I want to highlight today, verse 21, that faith also might increase in the earth. That is one of the reasons that the Doctrine and Covenants and the restoration of the church was brought about in these latter days. I hope that you have felt your faith increase as we live in this world um, and that you will continue to do so. I hope it has been of value. I hope it has, has changed something for you. That being said, any, well, I wish we had to, I, I'm used to teaching smaller classes and we can just say, hey, anybody got something to say? Um, is there anyone that had something to say? We do have a few mics about the semester. No pressure if there isn't. So one, okay, well, I bear testimony of the things that we have taught this semester. I bear testimony that they are true. I hope, as you said, that your faith, ha as I said, that your faith has increased, that you are prepared to better teach your children and your grandchildren and to stand as witnesses of God and of the gospel in all the world. And so let's go on. Our last, our last lesson of the uh, year is on hastening the work. We're going to take this grand picture of the restoration, the sweeping arc from its infancy to what it is today and talk about how it is going forth today, how it is hastening. And so, of course, you'll see not only did I put the picture of the running shoes up there, but I am wearing my running shoes today, which I would like to recommend as a new fashion choice because I have been so fast today. I left something at home and I literally ran to my car, ran in my house, ran back. I was like, I could never do this. So just as a brief um, fashion plug, I'm voting for those, at least to work, maybe not to church. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that last week, when, or sorry, last time I taught a month ago, I said that I would speak as slowly as I could and I think I did a very good job of that. Today, we're talking about hastening the work, and I'm talking as fast as I want. <laughs> so get ready. Put your running shoes on, because here we go. Um, talking about hastening the work of salvation, my first question, what do these three things have to do with each other? A stone, a seed, and a puzzle. Any ideas? 
stone, a seed, and a puzzle. Well, I wouldn't either. So the stone actually refers to Daniel 2. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, what stone am I talking about? Right, so yeah, perfect. So turn to Daniel, two, Daniel chapter 2, if you will, in your Old Testament, because why not use the Old Testament? Daniel chapter 2, right, let's see if I can get you a page number real quick. Or if you find it, you can shout it out. Daniel chapter 2 is 1101 in your Bible. So you'll remember that this is King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is off in Babylon, in Babylonian captivity. The King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream, and I'm sure this has happened to all of us. He wakes up. He knows he had a dream. Can't remember what the dream was about, but he knows that the dream bothered him. So he calls all his chief men to him and says, hey, I want you to interpret my dream, but first, can you tell me what I dreamed? Because I can't remember. And they are like, are you kidding me? Nobody. That is impossible. Give us a dream. We'll interpret it for you, which all of us have friends do that. And it is not true. Um, give me the dream and we'll interpret it. And he's like, no, I don't remember it. I need you to tell me what I dreamed. And, if, and then he threatens them all with death and is planning to kill them. While well, news of this impending death comes around to Daniel. And Daniel asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to pray with him, that, the, that God would let him know what the king had dreamed and the miracle that comes to pass. And he goes in and says, I can't tell you your dream, and no man on earth can tell you your dream, but verse 28, there is a God in heaven, and that God revealeth secrets and maketh known to you what will happen in the latter days. And that is what your vision was, your dream. He goes on to tell the, dream, the king exactly what he had dreamed, that he had seen this, this image of a man that had different parts, gold and silver and brass and clay and iron. And then he saw that there was a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands that rolled down and destroyed that image. And he goes on to interpret it and tell about the different kingdoms that will be set up. And in verse 45 and 46, uh, 44 and 45, sorry. Um, it talks about, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest, the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and then it destroys, breaking pieces, the iron, brass, clay, silver, gold. The great king, great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. A stone cut out of the mountain without hands that is going to fill the whole earth, a kingdom that will be established and that will stand forever. I hope you have seen this semester as we've talked about the restoration, how the kingdom was cut out, or the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, the divine role of God in that coming forth of the restoration. Uh, Book of Mormon translation being a great example by the power and gift of God, it's translated, without hands, without mortal hands. It comes and then it fills the whole earth. Okay, given that now as context, tell me about a seed. Any ideas? What is that one? Yeah. Oh, that's close. Alma 32. I like that. That idea of planting a seed and then it grows up and becomes a tree. Yep. And that's exactly the same principle that could, I chose a different one, but it's the exact same idea. Mine is Matthew 13. Matthew 13, I think it's verse 31, if I remember correctly. This is a series of parables, which if you study them together, are actually telling the history of the world, which is fascinating. Um, and it says, another parable he put forth, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of, air, of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. So exactly the same principle that Sister Heaps just shared. That idea of a small seed being planted into the ground, growing up into a great tree so big that the, birds, and the, angel, or the birds can come and lodge in the branches. Um, Joseph Smith taught that those birds were actually angels and the gifts and powers of God that came and lodged in the church. And that small seed that is planted is that gospel restoration. And that's how that, that parable fits into that context. A puzzle. This is a more recent reference. I'll give you that hint. Anyone? Elder Neil L. Anderson, in a recent general conference talk called A Witness of God, 
talked about the restoration as a giant puzzle with millions of pieces, just a mountain of puzzle pieces. And that each of us that are participants in the restoration and in the church of God on earth are helping to put that puzzle together. He talks about the original members, the early members of the church, that they were doing the work of just finding the straight edges and putting that frame around the church. And that since then, each one of us has a role in putting that puzzle into place. Um, I do puzzles with my mom at Christmas time. Everyone else thinks they're boring. We do them together. Um, and I tell my mom it is cheating to look at the top of the box. You can't look. I mean, you can look at it first to know what you're building, but there's none of this like compare the piece to the box. No, that is cheating. You've got to figure it out. Um, and I was thinking about that and my love for puzzles and um, this analogy that Elder Anderson made and thought, isn't the restoration kind of like that? I mean, surely Joseph and others had visions of where the church was going, right? Joseph talks about, you know, more than a babe on its mother's lap about the destiny of this church. It will fill North and South America. It will fill the world. So there definitely was a vision. But, but by all, overall, the average saint didn't see the complete picture from the beginning. And it was a little bit like doing a puzzle without the box top, putting it together, figuring it out, line upon line, like we talked. I think you've seen that. So a stone, a seed, and a puzzle, all of these analogies to something that's starting small, but that will grow to fill the whole earth. I hope you have seen that this semester. I hope you've seen the church come from its infancy in New York, and then moving on to this childhood-ish era where it's beginning to understand itself in Kirtland and, and Missouri in that time period, to then move on to Nauvoo and these greater doctrines that are built upon the prior lines. We start learning about temple work, redemption of the dead, eternal marriage, marriage, plural marriage, deification, these beautiful doctrines that have been built upon these layers. You see this line upon line until finally it goes forth into the West and here we are sitting in the middle of Salt Lake City as a result of this process, this stone, this seed, this puzzle that is rolling forth to fill the whole earth. I hope you have seen in the course of the semester the church coming forth out of obscurity and becoming a worldwide known entity. I mean, we had a member of the church run for president recently, and you can go on and on, CEOs of worldwide companies. The church has come forth out of obscurity and will continue and has fill the whole earth. Now, the lesson we were, we're gonna focus today, our, or our title comes today from a, a section of the DNC, taking off from that point, from that seed that has been started to where we are today, sitting here in Salt Lake City. And the phrase from which the lesson title comes is in DNC 88, verse 73. It's a short verse, I'll read it to you. It says, behold, I will hasten my work in its time. So we're gonna talk about that the rest of this time today. I will hasten my work in its time. My first question is for you is why? Why do we have to hasten the work? Why? Why can't we just keep going at the normal speed? Well, a um, couple of thoughts for you there, uh, along with this, just this general idea of hastening the work in its time. Um, first, if you'll turn with me, hopefully you made it to DNC 8873, because we're going on to the next one, which is now DNC 1, verse 12. Um, I have had one religion professor that proposed that this was actually the thesis statement of the Book of Mormon, or sorry, of the Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants 1 verse 12. It says, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. It is interesting, so DNC 1 is the preface of the Book of Mormon, as I said, revealed by the Lord himself, or sorry, of the Doctrine and Covenants revealed by the Lord himself. I'm apparently very ready to talk about the Book of Mormon today. So ready for next year. Um, Interestingly, so that's, that's DNC 1, the preface. DNC 133, which was assigned for the reading today, if you read in the header, was originally give, added to the Doctrine and Covenants as an appendix and was later assigned a, a section number. So originally, DNC 1 was the preface and DNC 133 was the appendix. They were bookends to the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. And it's interesting to me that in verses 1 through 4, the exact same theme, that same thesis from DNC 112 is repeated, where the Lord says, verse 4, wherefore prepare ye, prepare ye, O my people, sanctify yourselves, gather ye together, O my people of the church upon the land of Zion. And before that, verse 2, because the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. Do you see this idea? From DNC 1 to DNC 133, from the preface to the appendix, the idea is repeated and it is replete throughout the DNC. Prepare ye, for the Lord is coming. So why must we hasten the work? 
because the Lord is coming. If you'll turn with me to DNC 65, also reading. I am actually just going to read this section. I want you to listen for this section saying the same thing. Prepare ye, for the Lord is coming. And also, the stone, seed, and puzzle that we just talked about. Chapter, or sorry, section 65. Hearken and lo, a voice of one, as of one sent down from on high, who is mighty and powerful, whose going forth is unto the ends of the earth, yea, whose voice is unto men. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. Yea, a voice crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, prepare ye the supper of the Lamb, make ready for the bridegroom, pray unto the Lord, call upon his holy name, make known his wonderful works among the people. Call upon the Lord that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it and be prepared for the days to come, in which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. Wherefore, may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come. Beautiful language. That thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued, for thine is the honor, power, glory, forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that idea of a stone filling the earth, rolling down? Do you see that idea that we must prepare for the Lord's coming? Again, that is one of the great messages and themes of the DMC. Speaking of that coming and what we are preparing for, will you turn now to the other section, DNC one, uh, back to DNC 133, other section from our, learn, our um, reading for today. DNC 133, verse, we already read verse 4, prepare ye, prepare ye, sanctify yourselves. Verses 7 through 9, he gives commandment then of how to prepare. The time has come, the Lord is uh, the voice of the Lord is unto you. Go out from Babylon. Gather from the four nations. Verse 8, send forth the elders to the nations, unto the islands of the sea. Call upon Gentiles, the Jews. This is your cry. Go ye forth to the land of Zion. So this idea of missionary work and gathering, but then it expands it here. Go ye forth unto the land of Zion, that the borders of my people may be enlarged that the people will increase, that her stakes may be strengthened. So not just more in numbers, but the strength of the conversion of those members will increase, and that Zion may go forth unto the regions round about. Verses 10 and 11. Again, that idea of, of a coming visit for which we are preparing. Let the cry go forth among the people. Awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. Do you see it? It's just, it's just everywhere. Prepare, prepare. The Lord cometh. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour. Now this is an interesting topic on which I thought uh, a, a bit this week. This idea of the timeline and when is this timing. We know from this verse here, you know not neither the day nor the hour, that we don't know the timing of when the Lord is coming. That bride, the bridegroom reference in verse 10 is hearkening back to the New Testament, that idea of like 10 virgins waiting for a bridegroom to come, and that they didn't know, and so they had to watch with their lamps burning, right? Remember this? There's this idea that of not knowing the timeline of the Lord, that even the angels, we are told, don't know the timing of the Lord. And I've thought about that. And there are scriptures, oh, I have my slides in the wrong order. Um, this idea that he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, and DC 52, I will cut my work short in righteousness, for the days come that I will send forth judgment unto victory. So you have on one hand this idea, again, we don't know when the day is, but there's this idea that the Lord is going to cut it short in righteousness in Matthew 24, except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. That people will, there wouldn't be anybody left unless we, he ceased those destructions. But for the elect's sake, those days of judgment shall be shortened. So there is this idea of shortening the work in righteousness. There's also this idea of ripening in iniquity. That as we ripen in iniquity, that the, the days of judgment become more 
real, more quick, come more quickly. Um, they hasten those days. And so there's this kind of dual idea to this timeline. Of course, God knows the end from the beginning and, and knows what men will do and when they will be ripe and what iniquity and when he needs to cut his work short in righteousness. I did enjoy, however, during the most recent presidential election here in the United States, we will not say anything more beyond the fact that I, I had many conversations with many friends and some were not very happy with their options. Let's just put it that way. I remember one friend saying to me, she said, I just, I sat down with the ballot. I didn't know what to do. And I just looked at it. And, and there was all this rhetoric going around, right? A vote for him is not, is a vote for her. A vote for her is a, actually a vote for him and all this stuff. And she's like, I was trying to like sort it all out in my head. I didn't know what I was going to put on my ballot. I was literally sitting there. And she says, finally, I just picked the worst candidate and decided I would hasten the second coming. <laughs> I don't know which one that was in her mind. But there is this idea of if we ripen enough in iniquity that the, the second coming will come more quickly. This idea of hastening through wickedness, whereas we also have this idea here in Romans and DNC 52 of hastening in righteousness. I really like this quote by um, President Kimball. Just making sure we can still see. In my estimation, the Lord's timetable is directed a good deal by us. We speed up the clock, or we slow down the hands down, and we turn them back by our activities and our procrastinations. Again, I had a religion professor who once suggested then that perhaps the reason that even the angels, and especially we, do not know the day of the Lord's coming is because it actually depends a good deal on what we do and that we have influence over that day. Um, the rest of, D of section 133, I, I read it and I thought, man, we could teach a whole lesson just on DNC 133. Verse 18, this 144,000 have their father's name written on their foreheads. It's fantastic Old Testament imagery. Um, but just to kind of give you the, the gist, we were in verse 11 before. Um, verse 13, they're going to flee to the mountains. I like the S on there, mountains, multiple temples of the Lord's house. Um, and then going on from verse 17 on, there is this description of what will happen when the Lord comes, that he shall stand upon the Mount of Olivet, that he shall speak with a voice of many waters, that he shall command the deep. These, like the uh, uh, highway will come up out of the great deep, verse 27. So there's beautiful description of, of that second coming. Verse 33, they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy. This is the righteous. They shall fall down and be crowned with glory, even in Zion, by the hands of the servants of the Lord, even the children of Ephraim. That's verse 32. And there's these great blessings that will come as the Lord comes in majesty. Um, verse 36, it gives us the reason for the restoration. It says, O inhabitants of the earth, or it says, that these things might be made known, that ye may prepare for this day that is coming, that you know that is coming. O inhabitants of the earth, I have sent forth mine angel flying in the midst of heaven. It's a reference to Revelation 14. Having the everlasting gospel who hath appeared unto some and committed unto man. Verse 37, this gospel shall be preached unto every nation. And the servants of God shall go forth, saying, fear God and give glory to him, for his hour is come. Do you see? Again, so why this restoration that we've talked about this entire year? Why was it restored? It was to do this exact work. It was to prepare the world for the coming of the Lord. It was so that we can help others prepare for that day as well. Um, going on from there, it talks about judgments that are coming upon the, the world and then blessings that are come, coming. I like verse 48, the Lord shall be read in his apparel. There's beautiful imagery there. And it, um, Elder, it was Elder Maxwell that said he will come in, dressed in, quote, robes of reminding red. Um, so, but judgments and blessings that will co be coming. And then on to verse 57. Again, the purpose of the restoration for this cause, that men might be partakers of the, these glories, these blessings which he has just described, which were to be revealed, the Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity to prepare the weak for those things which are coming on the earth. And the, the Lord's errand in the day when the weak shall confound the wise, and the little one become a strong nation, and two shall put their tens of thousands to flight. And by the weak things of the earth, the Lord shall thresh the nations by the power of his spirit. And for this cause, these commandments were given. So I hope you see DNC 133, the appendix, just like the preface, prepare ye, the Lord is coming. And that is why we have a restoration. 
so that people, when men, when God comes again, he will find a people ready to accept their king. He will find a kingdom already started and that he will have glories and blessings and have people upon whom to, to, pl- to place them um, instead of just the judgments. What evidences have you seen, sisters, that the Lord, as he said in DNC 88, is hastening his work in our time? Um, and let me add, you can talk about the work in many ways. Moses 139, my work and my glory is to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. We can talk about the missions of the church, perfecting the saints, redeeming the dead, proclaiming the gospel, aiding the poor. We can talk, handbook two, talks about the work of salvation, including convert retention, member missionary work, activation of less active members, temple and family history work, teaching the gospel. What evidences have you seen of the Lord hastening the work in our time? We'll go here, and then was there there a hand over here as well? No, okay. This technology. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. There's explosion of technology. Did any of you see or go to BYU Women's Conference? Go BYU. Thank you. Um, Elder Stevenson's talk. Yeah, Sister Nagel here. She presented at Women's Conference. Shout out. Um, President or Elder Stevenson's talk was about technology and how it's being used to hasten the work to spread the knowledge of a savior. Other examples of the work being hastened in our time. Over here. More missionaries. Yeah, the missionary numbers have shot up. You can yell them out. We'll, we'll pass on the mic. Do you have one? Well, I was going to say, besides the lowering of the age, um, which has really changed things, but just that different approach to temple work. Um, growing up, nobody that I knew, um, not temple work, genealogy work. It was kind of that word. And now, like, we all do it, and we're all on our computers. Yeah. And if we don't, our kids are doing it. And it's like... We're getting the feeling of it, not like, I should do this. It's like, no, I want to do this. I think there's just been a shift. Like, I understand why I need to connect my people. Uh-huh. And before I didn't, it, they were, I just didn't get it. And I feel like it's a lot more, um, maybe other people are getting it all along, but I didn't until recently. No, I totally agree. Right by, back behind you, actually. Yeah, and that technology is what is really enabling that. And there's an, I have a, a friend who gave a great talk about the, the, how the dates line up, that the, the first vision or like the restoration church lines up with this technology and this technology, like it is just lockstep. It's amazing to see the technologies come out as they are, are needed to hasten the work. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is the change in the curriculum. Yeah. So from the time I was a child and the songs I sang in primary about Little Purple Pansies and Gives of the Little Popcorn. Stream. Mm-hmm. And how now, the, um, for the, the primary, but I work in Young Women's and I've taught seminary, and the doctrinal, it's not about entertaining at all. It's, you know, it's doctrine, doctrine, teach, testify, testify. Um, they come differently. Like, I look at my grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think you're absolutely right. There's been a huge shift in curriculum um, as far as seminaries and institutes. And we'll go here and then here. Um, uh, yeah, Preach My Gospel is another great example where we went from rote, memorized discussions, then we had a hybrid model, that's when I served my mission, and then Preach My Gospel, which is completely principle and doctrine-based. In the seminaries and institutes, we see it again, both in how the, do- the curriculum is written, as was mentioned. We changed scripture mastery to doctrinal mastery. There's a lot of different, uh, more emphasis on doctrine, on the what really converts. I think the proliferation of temples yes. and how easy it is to go to the temple now. Yeah. I mean, it was when with Jordan River being closed, it's actually inconvenient. <laughs> right. I have that, to drive 20 you minutes? Know, you might have to drive all what? the way to Draper. It's just yeah. crazy. Yeah. Right? We're so spoiled on the Wasatch Front. Anybody outside of the Utah that's listening to this is rolling their eyes right now. But it's true. The prolification of temples, proliferation of temples throughout the earth is a huge sign of the Lord hastening his work. He's saying, let's get this done. Oh, right over here. Sister. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you. Sorry, one of our mics apparently is not working, but she was talking about the growth of the church in Africa and the miracles that have happened with that. And that is actually the perfect segue. I think we could make a list, I, I mean, we could list a dozen more, um, more we to take the time for. I encourage you to look for those as you participate. Um, the, uh, in, the lower changes in age for missionary service, increasing numbers of missionaries, the change to, to doctrine in the curriculum, the number of temples, the, the technology to both share the gospel and to do family history work, on and on and on, you can see an increased emphasis on hastening the work. We have a website on it, for goodness sakes. Um, but building off of what she just said about the church in Africa, I wanted to look, I wanted to show you there's an awesome project called Mapping Mormonism. I don't know if you've seen it. By, I believe he's uh, by a man down at BYU. And he shows this filling of the earth that we were talking about, this stone or this seed, this puzzle that started small, embryotic, and has grown to fill the whole earth. So we're gonna start with the church today. I, of course, put a picture of the meganacle on this slide so that really gives us a sense of, you know, if you compare the tabernacle to the meganacle, it's like 2,000 versus 20,000 seats. It just shows, it's a visual evidence of, of the growth of the church. But the church today, 15 million members, 30,000 congregations, 10,000 welfare missionaries with 189 countries aided, 71,000 missionaries today, 422 missions, 155 temples, 400,000 seminary students, 350,000 institute students, four universities and colleges, colleges go BYU, 5,000 family history centers in 138 countries. The numbers are astounding, especially when you consider that we started with just six members in 1830. This from that Mapping Mormonism program is all the different projections that people have made over the time over time of church membership from the, the extreme thank you from the extreme um, upwards to to a lower estimate the dotted line the dark dots are the actual growth of church membership since 1985 you can see the estimates as well as actual growth that that increase that rolling forth to fill the whole earth this picture and I know some of these are small I got them as big as I could to get still get them on a slide so if you can't see them you can come up Afterwards, this one you're seeing now is the stakes of Zion. So we have in 1910, just those few stakes you see in the scattered in the United States, 1930, a few more, 1950, a few more, you got Hawaii getting in on it. Um, 1970 on the top right, you see both in the United States, but now throughout the world, 1990, even more than 2010. Look, the, you can't even see the US anymore. Um, tons throughout Europe, the US, South America, and then beginning and Asia, and then beginning in Africa. I think this one's really fascinating. This is regional membership, so it's just by percentages. Out of 100%, where in the world are members? You can see back in 1905, where the graph starts, that Utah population is, of members in the world, 60% of them live in Utah. And that slowly begins to decline as people migrate into other parts of the United States. Mormons move into other states. Um, and like it says, out-migration. And so you see them spreading throughout the rest of the United States, the blue. It's interesting, around 1960 or 1965 um, is when you see that half of church Half the church resides outside the, the Intermountain West for the first time since the saints moved to the valley. And then continuing on, you see in the 19... Um, 80s and 90s, really 1995, that half of the church is outside the US. You can see the pinks are Latin America. And you can see those 1980 years when we were just baptizing like wildfire in Latin America, you can see that surge happening. And then also in Asia, Europe's been pretty steady. And now, as was mentioned, you can see that little yellow sliver, you can see that Africa is starting to have a surge and become a greater percentage of overall LDS population. You see the same thing here. This is where general authorities are from that have been called. So early in the church, they're of course, that first bar, they're all New York and Ohio and all of that, right? And as we go on, you see that dark blue, that the high percentages from Utah. But look at it in recent years, 2006 to 2013. We see a much bigger rainbow of the places from which people are called to be general authorities. And we see Latin America, and again, that beginning of a surge in Africa happening as the gospel becomes spread throughout the whole earth. The general authorities are called from all over. Specifically, looking at Africa, was, as was mentioned, this is church growth in Africa since 1950. Look at that graph on the left. Isn't that amazing? Look at the date around which that starts to take off. 1975, 1980. Does that ring a bell? 
Yeah, revelation on, uh, on the, about blacks in the priesthood. And all of a sudden, missionary work, uh, the work of salvation has taken off in, in, in Africa. So you see percentages of the population that are LDS, the number of stakes, and the numbers of members. You can see a similar graph here, which year the different countries were open to missionary work. Um, number of missionaries we talked about. You can see the number of missions at the top and the number of missionaries in the middle. Do you see how, with looking at the middle graph, for example, it goes up, 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 and then it dips down a little bit near the end? What's that dipping down? It's raising the bar. It's raising the bar. So the number, it actually dips down a little bit, and then it just skyrockets. What's that one? The age, right there at the end, where it just sp spikes. That's the age. Same thing with the number of missions, new missions created to accommodate the missionaries. And this is convert baptisms and baptisms per missionary per year, and where missionaries are being sent at the bottom. Again, color-coded by continent. Super interesting. Um, I'm just going fast, because we got to get to more important things. Worldwide missions. You can see them scattered throughout the earth. 422 today. This one's fascinating. We don't have a lot of time, but I want you to really look. It goes through the different temples and some unique things about it. But if you look at the timeline on the bottom, the red dots indicate the number of temples built that year and the size of those temples. Big dots, big temple. Little dots, little temple. So there's 1830 to 1960. Here's 1970 to 2013-ish. Where's President Hinckley? Yeah, mini temple galore. So you just see this huge spike in temples. There it is together, so you can kind of compare the number of temples. And finally, this one is where humanitarian projects have taken place, and the number of projects from 86 to 2009, where we have served with humanitarian um, projects. Look at the lights. So I hope that helps you see this idea of hastening the work and this, this stone filling the whole earth. Um, we're going to have to skip the next section for time, but I wanted to discuss, I'll just throw it out there, what is our responsibility in the hastening of the work? What, what requirements do we have? I want you, I'm just going to give this as homework, but I want you to look in two places um, or think about two things. One is DNC 138, 53 through 56. DNC 138, 53 to 56, as a brief teaser, you'll remember that in this vision that, that President Smith sees that in the pre-mortal world, that the leaders of the church had lessons. They, they, with many others, were given lessons in the, the pre-mortal world and prepared to come forth to work in the Lord's vineyard in the latter days. I'd like you to consider what lessons might you have received might you have been among those people? And what work, what responsibility do you have based on what, upon what you read in DNC 138, 53 through 56? Um, another great principle, the second one I'd like to add, this idea of the Abrahamic covenant. When Sister Lawrence was here talking about the gathering of Israel, she mentioned that uh, quote, I believe by Elder Bruce McConkie, who mentioned that this idea of the gift of spirituality and that that gift included the ability to recognize the truth and then share it. We who are of the covenant people, the Abrahamic covenant and of the line of Israel, we have been given something that we are, are required, are asked, are needed to recognize as truth, but then flow out to the rest of the earth. God put it in a vessel, but he intended it to flow. So those are my two things um, there. Next question for you then, given all that we have talked about, is how will you hasten the work? What will the hastening of the work look like for you? Again, I put on my runners today, if you can see them. I want you to tell, find your partner again, and I want you to tell them, what does hastening the work look like? What does it look like for you? You can talk to each other.
Take 20 more seconds. Come back to me. Awesome. You are so much better at paying attention after that than the normal institute students, let me just tell you. I have a lot of tricks to get their attention back. I don't have to use them on you. Um, I hope, I wish we had time to hear some of your thoughts on how you hasten the work and what hastening the work looks like for you. Um, I hope you included things like a greater love for temple and family history work, as was mentioned. Maybe a, a, a greater resolve to live the gospel. Maybe better member missionary work. Maybe reaching out to less actives. May, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be for you. Um, I brought these red shoes today. These are not mine. This is not my shoe size. Please note. Um, and they are bright red, which goes against all the feelings of my heart. Go Cougs. Um, but... Um, I brought these because, so I have a friend that works down at the church office building, works um, for one of the departments there, and he is known by these red shoes. He, it was a big deal that he let me borrow them today. He's wearing his old ones, by the way. He has two pairs. Um, but it's a big deal that he let me borrow these red shoes. He's known, I mean, he dresses very nice, dresses in a suit and whatever, and then he wears these bright red sneakers, and everybody knows him as the guy in the red shoes. And people ask him and say, why are you wearing those shoes to work, those running shoes? He's like, well, they told us to hasten the work. <laughs> I don't think that's really why he wears them. I think he just likes them. But um, I brought them today as this, you know, and I, he's joking. He knows that that's not exactly, how he does, God doesn't mean to run physically to um, hasten the work. But I brought them as this visual aid of, of what, what, you know, what does hastening the work look like? I'd like to submit, and I'm going to warn you right now that I'm going to go over time. I just know it's going to happen. So if you need to leave at 10 o'clock, you go ahead and go, and I will not be offended. Um, but as I pondered on this topic of hastening work, and I think that we could make a list a mile long of things we could potentially do, whether it's better family history work like we talked about, it's going to the temple, it's teaching our children, all of those things. And I hope, like I said, they're all on your list. But as I thought about hastening the work, I, I wanted to present a slightly different view. It starts here. If you go back to DNC um, 8873, I want you to notice the subjects and the pronouns and used in that verse. Who is going to hasten the work? DNC 88, verse 73, it reads, I will hasten my work in its time. Whose work is it? It is the Lord's work. And he testifies in 2 Nephi that, behold, I can do mine own work. I remember as a missionary, Elder Holland came and spoke in his own conference, and I remember him literally pounding the pulpit as he talked about four things he wanted every missionary in Chile to know. And one of them was this, that it is his work, that he can do his own work, and that we are instruments in that work. Surely there is something for us to do. Surely there is much for us to do, but we need to remember overall that it is his work to be done in his way and that he will hasten his work in its time. I love this by Elder Bednar from the 2014 Mission President's Conference. He says, the leaders of the church have given timely emphasis, emphasis to the importance of hastening the work of salvation. Right? We have a website on it. We had a conference on or a broadcast on it. But I wonder sometimes if we as servants of the Lord believe that we primarily and solely must hasten this supernal work. Faithful and diligent members, this is not him, um, faithful and diligent members play a vital role in helping God's kingdom roll forth across the, er, the world, Elder, Elder Bednar explained. But then, quote, but the Lord hastens his work. We do not. First and foremost, we always should remember that this work is the Lord's work, and he does the hastening. So if you making a list to your neighbor about what you need to do gave you anxiety because you're already overworked, because you can't fit one more thing in, but you feel guilty that you should, I invite you to remember Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye who, are la who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. 
God's idea in hastening his work in its time is not that you and I become so anxiously engaged that we are merely anxious or that we run faster than we have strength or do more than we are able. He wants a very different and equally different type of work. And this is my point today. It isn't about tuning out, sitting back, or copping out because, hey, it's the Lord's work and he's going to hasten in his time. It is about working differently, harder. It is about being more Mary and less Martha. It is about doing the work in the Lord's way. I love Mary and Martha because at the beginning of the semester, I was like, we got Rosemary, we got Becca, and I can tell you which one's Mary and which one's Martha. I mean, her name even says it, if you think about it. And, you know, and, and so I would laugh about that, but in some ways it would seem very true. Um, um, can you turn, let's look at an example of this, Luke 5. I want to testify to you this, uh, to you that this work, as I mentioned, can be harder, but it's also easier, as the Lord said. But it is still work. That's perhaps a better way to say it. It is still work. We still do something. I love this example, though, in Luke 5. This is, you'll remember the fishermen? The apostles are out on the sea, and they put down their nets, and, they, and, the, and they've been fishing all night. And then verse 4, Christ tells them, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon said, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. We have been working our buns off and we aren't getting anywhere. Nevertheless, which is a great word of faith in, used in a, in a particular way. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. I would submit to you, sisters, that we do not need to run faster or try harder or be more truer than true or more righteous than, than we are in a sense. We don't need to, to be truer than true. Instead, we need to turn to the master. Instead, we need to work differently. We need to work with him and that he will actually multiply our efforts. I like to call this divine mathematics. Um, we don't have time. I wanted you to kind of look at them. I, want, I do want you to look at them and see if, what in the world are those numbers meaning. Does anybody have any idea on any of them? Just shout it out. Mathematically, those are all false. Do we agree? Yeah. What are they? Does it help on the first one if I do this? Tithing. Very good. Tithing. That somehow, even though you pay 90% or 10% and only have 90% of your salary left, that somehow that 90% can do more than you would have with the 100%. God's mathematics. 332,000. Who's got it? Gideon. Remember? He had an army of 32,000. God pared it down to 300. Why? So that the Israelites would know that it was not the strength of their arm that defeated the Midianites, but rather it was God. 300 are more than 32,000. Five plus two is greater than 5,000. Loaves and fishes, right? Five loaves and two fishes can feed even more than, than 5,000. 12 baskets, six greater than seven. Sabbath day. And two greater than 10,000, I put in, it actually comes from DNC 133. We read earlier when we were reading in DNC 1, uh, 133 that I'll, I've got it right here. That two shall put their tens of thousands to flight. Second Kings 6.16 is a great example of this. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Part of the reason that this multiplying, this divine mathematics takes place is because there are legions of angels, Elder Holland has testified, on the other side of the veil that are assisting us when we do this work. Um, maybe some of you have seen this. This is a great talk on um, LDS.org. It's on the blog. Um, but I wanted to talk about this idea of, of this multiplying effect. President Benson once said that men and women who turn their lives over God, to God will find out that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. Um, that instead of requiring us to do more, um, that God, if we turn our lives to him, will increase our opportunities, comfort our souls, pour out peace, raise up friends, enhance our natural abilities, that you will be able to do more than you otherwise could. That the idea of hastening the work is not about you doing more so that you can hasten the work or you doing more so that you can be Christ-like, but it is rather that as you yoke yourself with Christ, that you together can do more than you otherwise could of your own natural abilities. And you do not have to work yourself to death. 
that you will be able to draw down the powers of heaven and see miracles take place when me plus Christ equals more. Have you seen this in your own life? Have you seen times when instead of running to grab a hammer to fix the problem and do it trusting in the arm of flesh, they instead you knelt down to say a prayer and that miracles happened? I worry that instead we too often lived, live as God warned Joseph Smith. He said that, quote, they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Have you ever thought about what that frame, phrase means? Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Let me submit one idea. That perhaps we go about with a form of godliness. We're reading our scriptures. We're going to church. We're doing the things, if you looked at us. But perhaps we forget the power thereof. We let it slip through our fingers. Like Martha, we run around and are so busily doing things. But unlike that we aren't getting the power that can be there. I testify that angels literally help man, that prayers are answered, that faith is powerful. If we can only tap into it, let us not have the form of godliness, but forget or deny or disbelieve the power thereof, because there is power there to be had. God pushes us to the edge pushes and pushes and pushes. Like Elder Holland has said, and as I said earlier, this isn't just, okay, let's sit back and let God do it. It's his work. This is work. It's just a different kind of work. It's a work of becoming one with God. It's a work of working with him rather than just fiercely doing more, toiling all night on our own. It is, and it is a scary work. God, as Elder Holland has said, pushes us to the edge of the cliff and we get closer and closer and closer and are scared we're going to fall. It's hard. It takes faith to let go internally. It's a lot easier to do things that are tangible. But then when he gets us to the end of the cliff, he actually pushes us and instead of falling, we fly, Elder Holland says. So what does hastening the Lord's work really look like? It looks like putting down our distractions to do as well. It looks like asking his opinion. It looks like his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It looks like he is on our right hand and on our left and goes before our face. It looks like treasuring up the word so that we have the, in the very moment the portion that is to be meted out to every man. It looks like taking time to be holy and being on his team. It looks like Jacob 5. You'll remember that this allegory of the last days that it ends, that the, in the end, after all of the gyrations of human history, that in Jacob 5, starting in verse 70, the Lord says that he is going to call other laborers to labor in the vineyard with their might. And it's the last time. The end is nigh. Sounds like DNC. The speed, season speedily cometh. And then, so the laborers come, and they do labor with their might. In verse 72, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. He works with us. That is hastening the work, working with him. And then one of the great blessings, verse 74, it says that they had preserved the natural fruit, um, they cast away the bad, they labored with all diligence, and then that highlighted line, and they became like unto one body that as we work with the Lord, we actually become like him. And that that is what hastening the work means. Um, I pondered, after having done this thing with the running shoes, what does the picture of hastening the work then really look like? If it's not, let me go all the way back, this one with which we started. If it's not the running shoes, then what does it look like? And this is the picture that I came up with. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who publisheth peace. You'll notice that she is barefoot because in Exodus 2, when Moses paused long enough to look at a burning bush and thus connect with God to be called to his work, that God said to him, Moses, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the ground whereon thou standeth is holy ground. I believe that hastening the work involves putting off our shoes, metaphorically, and standing with God on holy ground, and that as we do that, we will be worlds more effective.
divine mathematics than we could otherwise be. We do not know the timing of the second coming of the Lord. We don't know the timeline by which he needs to finish the hastening of his work. Christ said in the New Testament that it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Lord has put into his hands. That's Acts 1-7. So we don't know the time. Not even the angels in heaven do know. But based on everything we have studied this semester, I hope that you have come to see, and I believe that it is time. It is time for us to be women of faith, women who know the scriptures, who speak scriptures and teach them powerfully to our children. It is time for women who will not cower in the corner when the world points a mocking finger or belittles the things in which we believe, but will stand resolutely by the kingdom of God, by its prophets, and by its Christ. It is time for women who are unabashed in their defense and proclamation of family, parents, and gender, for women who live lives of power and virtue, for indeed the two are one and the same. I hope this semester you have been able to increase, as I said, in faith. And I know that you are and can be those women. It is time to be those women. The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. What will you do today? to work with God, to hasten his work in the Lord's way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.